We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. Ephesians 4. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Please be seated. It is with great joy that once again I share in fellowship with Res Oakland. Um, Amen. You are one of my favorite churches, straight up, straight up in the whole wide world. Um, You really are. I really enjoy being here. I am so thankful to be here with you. Um, I am sorry that I could not bring Sharon here. Uh, speaking of God's goodness, um, we experienced it when she was bike, we were bike riding with some friends a few weeks ago in Half Moon Bay, and she broke her ankle. And yeah, it was, it was not great, um, but uh, we were transported to Stanford. Um, that's a really nice hospital, I'll just say that. And she did get surgery, but she will be convalescing for the next few months. So Lord willing, she'll be here next time when we're together. Um, you've heard the word of God, Brett. Let me pray and we'll get into the message. Father, we're grateful for your abundant goodness displayed on the cross of Jesus Christ and now lived out by your people. We pray that you would bless this word, that it would be proclaimed faithfully so that we, your people, might continue to live before you joyfully. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of this sermon is Chopped. Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar, I get the title from a competitive cooking show called Chopped. It is one of my favorite cooking shows. If you're unfamiliar with it, you can look it up on the Food Network, but it's one of your basic cooking shows where they bring together four chefs from around the country. They've even done several from Oakland. They bring together Why do I have my mask still on? (laughs) As Pastor Dave said, he's older, that's why he's just. (laughs) And they bring together these four chefs from um, around the country, and they have them in a round-robin cooking competition that lasts three rounds. They have to make an appetizer, a main course, and then the final two, those who made it through the first two rounds, they square off in a dessert round. And they cook before three top-notch restaurateurs or chefs who are are the judges. These are chefs who are experienced, they're successful, they're effective, they know how to judge food. Now, like any good cooking competition, Chopped has its own little twist. And their twist is simply this. The chefs have no idea of what the ingredients are that they're going to have to use before they cook each particular dish. 
So they're literally going in to cook either an appetizer, a main course, or a dessert, having no idea of the four main ingredients that they have to use. They can use other ingredients in addition to that, but they have to use at least the four main ingredients in the basket. Moreover, these ingredients don't necessarily go well together at first glance. They might get, for example, a chicken leg, bok choy, jelly beans, Yes, and a hard-boiled egg. And then they get a time limit of usually 20, maybe 30, 40 minutes, 45 minutes to create a dish that is both plateable, that is, it has to look good, and it has to taste good in order for them to move on to the next level so that they won't be chopped. What I take from that, among many hours of great entertainment, is how they bring together these four disparate, distinct ingredients, and then they blend them together into a cohesive dish, and it reminds me so much about what the living God is doing here and now in Res, Oakland. He is bringing people from all kinds of backgrounds together in his church, and he is molding you into something beautiful and glorious so that he can display his glory. Amen. Now, the book of Ephesians is what we would call a circular letter. It's a letter that Paul wrote probably not just to the church of Ephesus, but also to the group of churches that were in that region that were birthed out of Paul's time um, in Ephesus that you can read about in Acts chapter 19. What the main theme of the letter is God's overall glory as lived out and as culminated in the sinless life, the sacrificial death, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Throughout scripture, God's glory is seen, viewed, and described as his unique supremacy his significant importance, and his brilliant beauty. And as I said, they culminate in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The theme of Paul's letter, therefore, to the Ephesians and these other churches in this area was the way that God is now displaying his overall glory to the world and even to the cosmic powers that have arrayed against him. The phrase, to the praise of his glory, occurs frequently in chapter 1. And then Paul summarized the beauty and the depth of the full redemption of Jesus Christ that he wrote about from chapters 1 to 3 with these words. Now to him, who was able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to the power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's how he concluded chapter 3. He then 
opens chapter 4 with one of the main ways we apply what he just wrote so that we together as God's people might live, embrace, and proclaim the full glory of God. That is his unique supremacy, his supreme significant importance, and his brilliant beauty as they culminate in the sinless life, sacrificial death, and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. We do so by relying on the power of the Holy Spirit to consistently walk within us and work within us so that the very virtues that Christ showed in order to obtain our redemption, we begin to consistently demonstrate to one another. Paul began chapter 4 with the term translated, therefore. It connects what he wrote up to that point about God's glorious redemption to one of the main ways it's applied within a local church context. And applying this salvation in this context means we first must have a deep, reverent respect for our redemption and the blessing we've been given as God's people to be the vehicle through which God displays his glory. Amen. In other words, we are to take our calling seriously. Note again what he wrote at the top of chapter 4, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. That is, our lives, by the grace of God, should consistently reflect the gratitude and seriousness with which we hold our redemption, the way it was secured by Christ's own blood and the ramifications for our lives in the here and now. We take our Lord, what he did, his church, and God's glory seriously. We might be able to compare this to the way a minister calls for a couple to recite their vows during a marriage ceremony. And while there's also always room for a little levity and lightheartedness, there does come a time when the minister must look into the eyes of the bride and groom to make sure you are taking this seriously. This is not simply a plaything. This is a marriage ordained by God. We must take our redemption seriously. It doesn't mean that it is a morbid seriousness. It is a joyful seriousness, but we have to recognize that the living God who created the world and everything in it, who even now exists in unapproachable light, who is even now served by billions and billions of beings, he has decided that he wants to display his supreme importance, his brilliant beauty through us. And that if the souls of Oakland are going to see, get a taste of, maybe even a small glimpse of the awesome being and wondrous person of the living God, 
they might get it as they spend some time with his people here at Res Oakland. Now we do this by embracing the virtues listed in the following section. Let, let's call them our chopped basket of biblical virtues. We, we would look inside that basket and we would see, oh, okay, we, we've got some humility here. We've got a little gentleness and have mercy, patience. Now, before giving a brief description of each virtue, let me say that you already know this, but let me remind you that each and every one of these virtues was specifically designed to be practiced among living, breathing, sometimes get-on-your-nerves people. I'm going to say that again. <laughs> These virtues were specifically designed to be practiced among living, breathing people. People you may not want to be around all the time. People who perhaps at times you may not even want to be a part of your life. People you wonder, why did God call them here, Therese Oakland? Of all the churches in the Bay Area, Lord, there's got to be at least one other that you could <laughs> just pass them along. No, God called them here, right up with your community group. <laughs> you see, there is, as we know, a great deal of our faith uh, that can many times should be done alone. However, displaying the virtues that propel our display of God's glory isn't one of them. It's one of the main reasons we do need each other. We do need the local church. These are the virtues that as we begin to display them consistently, we will see our growth in the Lord. We will begin to experience that spiritual formation, that spiritual maturity, we will begin to experience the holiness of the living God working through the power of the Spirit and the Word of God in the example of Christ becoming more and more evident in our lives. We need one another for these things. So let's begin. Humility. The way Paul uses humility here and in Philippians conveys the idea, the, the, the virtue of putting the needs, the interests, the issues of others before our own. It calls for us to be aware of, to listen out for, to identify those needs, issues, and interests of our brothers and sisters in Christ so that we can address them as if they were our own. You see, that means, among other things, dearly loved ones in Christ, that the phrase, that's not my problem, has no place within the life of God's people. It's why we do take the time to carefully listen to each other's prayers, concerns. We take the time to hear where we are in our walk, we take the time to see what's going on with one another. And even when we're in conflict, 
We take the time to give space to one another. I think all of us, in one way or the other, in our lives, we've experienced this virtue if we've had good service at a restaurant. I'm not talking about average service or even bad service. I'm talking about good service, where your server anticipates the needs of you and those in your party, where he or she is attentive to what's going on, where if there's a problem, they make sure it's corrected. Now, at that point, they may wish to watch the game also. You may be in, in one of those sports bar restaurants that I frequent once in a while, watching the Eagles do what they do, and they might want to watch the game also. They may want to read a book also. They may want to scroll on their Facebook or Instagram also, but at that point in time, they are there to serve you. And if they do so well, they're attentive. That is, they put your needs, your issues, your interests before their own. That's the beauty of what we get an opportunity to do within the body of Christ, with, again, living, breathing people. Gentleness follows humility, and it's somewhat connected to it, because in knowing the needs, the interests, the issues of our brothers and sisters, we can begin to deal with them in ways that convey God's grace, love, compassion, and concern for them. And we do so gently in this context. Gentleness is the quality of treating, especially treating the thoughts, the psyche, the feelings of others with care while refusing to be harsh with them. That is, we take special care not to hurt or to wound others. We watch what we say. We watch how we say it. If we see that we have in any way or even perceive that we may have hurt someone, we are quick to approach them and say, you know, I, I said something and, and, and I saw a look on your face after I, I said it. And I just want to make it clear that it was not my intent at all. But even if I didn't intend it, I hurt you. I apologize, please forgive me. It was never my intent to cause you any harm. We are gentle. We, we, we hear this, and many times we see it as parents caution and advise older siblings to be careful with younger children. You might hear one of the parents say, okay, okay, gentle now, gentle. I know you wanna play, I know you wanna have a good time, but remember, you, you have to be gentle. You have to be cognizant of and mindful of the reality that we do not want to cause hurt or harm. You know, this, this oozes our Lord in the way that he would speak to people who came to him for the forgiveness of sin. One of my favorite stories is that account in Luke 7 when a woman approaches him for the redemption that he alone can give. And while most everybody else in the setting in this particular house wants to look at her and view her and treat her harshly, our Lord Jesus displays 
equality of such gentleness. Gentleness is one of those virtues we, the church, must have on prime display at this point in our society. So many have been told, treated, and viewed harshly so that when God does begin to prick their hearts and bring them to himself, sometimes the last place they want to be seen is a church. Let us be known for the reality that we treat, we view, we handle the lives of others with care and with gentleness. The next ingredient in our basket is patience. Now, patience, again, as used here, is that virtue of refusing to give up on our brothers and sisters while we wait for the Lord to gradually make the changes in their lives that contribute to their own spiritual formation. We realize that God is going to save people who, unlike some of us, didn't grow up in church all their lives. They don't know the lingo. They don't know the dress code. They don't know how you're supposed to quote-unquote act. And many of us are still struggling with our issues, our trauma, our sin. Well, we don't just say, you know, in this club here, we expect people to have a certain level of maturity to hang. It's been six months, you're seeming to not fit in. There's a church down the street for you. No, we are the church down the street for you. Okay, so um, I think I may have mentioned this before. If I didn't, I'm going to mention it now. And if I'm ever before you again, if they ever invite me back, I'll mention it again. I am a Gramps now. Thank you. <laughs> Charles Stephen Joseph Lewis II was born on Friday, December 18th. Yes, I have a picture of him on um, my phone. Yes, I thank you. Yes, he, yes. I literally watch him every day. They live in Richmond, Virginia. Um, Charles, Hannah, and Charles. Um, Stephen, they call him. They live in Richmond, Virginia. Um, and so they send us videos, and I look at them every day. And he loves to jump up and down in his little jump thing. He's not quite walking yet. But I suppose the way he wiggles his little legs and the way he likes to jump up and down, pretty soon he will start the process of walking. Now, most all of us know what it's like to be around a child, at least to know of a child who's begun to walk. She takes a few halting steps at first, and then plop, that's what Charles will do. Stefan will take a few st steps, and he'll go plop, he'll hit the floor. Because that, that's what they do. They, they, they haven't got quite the hang of it yet. Now, wh when that happens, because I know my son, and, 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 and I sort of know my, my, my daughter-in-law, and, and they're wonderful parents, they really, really are. I know that when Charles begins to start to walk just a little bit, and he plops and hits the ground, they're not going to walk over to him and say, you know, 
you're useless. It's never going to happen. Just keep crawling around, and we'll just carry you until, like, I don't know, you're 14. You are such a disappointment. We would never do that to a child. We would have patience. We would say, well, it's not happening now, but by the grace of God, it will happen. Look, dearly loved ones in Christ, Pastor Gramps is speaking to you now. We're going to have a lot of folks come in our midst who are having some trouble getting their walking legs. They're going to take a few steps forward and then go plop. And we might wonder, how could they get in that situation again? How could they do that again? What, what's up with them? Life, sin, humanity is up with them, like it's up with all of us. We all have that struggle. And when we see it and when we experience it with one another, we are patient. We are willing to wait until the Lord continues to do his work in them just as we're thankful that the saints who are around us waited until the Lord did his work in us. And we do so because we are utterly confident that Jesus Christ will never look at one of us and say, you know, it's been five, 10, 15, 20 years, and sometimes you still go back to the same mess. You still rely on sin to meet your needs, satisfy your desires, find healing, look for significance. I thought you would have been done with that by now. I'm over with you. That will never, ever happen. We will always have a Savior who says, I will experience you with patience every single day of your life because he that began a good work on you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And you can count on that fact, Jack. <laughs> this last virtue before we close with this song exhortation is that with a, um, of bearing with one another and I love how Paul wrote it. We bear with one another in love. You see, it's, it's a, it could be a challenging virtue for us to adopt and embrace. It calls for us to accept and continue to joyfully engage with those whose walk from the Lord may differ from ours. Essentially, it means we're called to be in joyful, loving fellowship with those who follow the Lord but who have some ways that aren't sinful, that they're not giving up, but that we struggle, struggle to wonder how can they continue to follow the Lord in that way? How can they be, look, let's just put it on the table. How can they be so different in their politics than me and I'm following the Lord and I'm positive, I am absolutely positive that the way that I view my political Positions come from Scripture, and yet they have political positions that are different from mine, and they say that they're from Scripture, and Lord, you're not changing them. And Paul says there are some ways that we're going to follow the Lord together that are still going to be distinct to us, and the Lord accepts and embraces us. They're not going to change. And so Paul said, 
not simply gutting it out, but bearing with one another in love. You see, in love means that we continue to follow through on the attachment we have to our brothers and sisters in Christ. We continue to regard them with affection and warmth. We continue to invite them in our lives. We continue to build on the things, Lord, that build us up and that we have in common. We continue to relate and regard them in love. which leads to our last exhortation here. Because when we're living and walking in humility and in gentleness and in patience and we're bearing with one another in love, it's the way that we're making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit. This unity refers to our new identity in Christ, which Paul really spoke and wrote about in this letter to the Ephesians and those churches in that area. It means that we are now and forever a part, an integral part of God's new people, his new family, his new kingdom. Listen to how Paul wrote it towards the end of Ephesians 2. Consequently, You are no longer foreigners or strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. You see, to make every effort to keep the unity that we already have in Christ means we do everything possible to maintain, to nurture, to grow our relationships with each other so that separation, should it happen, becomes difficult and painful. We are eager, eager to do all that we can so that we together can continue to be the vehicle through whom which the living God gets glory as it culminates in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And let me end here. There are a few reasons we we need to, to look into these things, to pray about these things, to consider these things. As I said in the beginning, these are the very virtues our Lord embodied when he rescued us from our sin. He embodied humility. He looked to our need for redemption, my need for salvation, my need to have my sins accounted for and washed away so that I wouldn't have to face the fierce, fair judgment of the living God. He put my needs and interests and issues before his own, and that took him to the cross. And when I came to him then at my salvation and continue to come to him now, as I continue to grow and struggle with my own sin, he continues to show me such gentleness. And I just can't fathom it after I've been in this thing for, um, as Pastor Dave said, I'm older now, so I've been almost 30 years, and yet he is still gentle with me. He is still patient. 
He's never going to say to me, that's it, Lance. It's been 30-something years. I'm done. Jesus is the one who embodies these virtues. Here's another thing, though. Look at our world today. Where are people experiencing these virtues? Are they experiencing them in their homes? Maybe, maybe not. Are they experiencing them at work? Probably not. Are they experiencing them online? Oh, no. <laughs> Our world seems to be ratcheting up the hostility, the anger, the rancor, the belligerence. God is going to bring us people who in so many ways have experienced the very opposite of these virtues. And when he does, it will be literally a breath of healing fresh air just to see a group of people who, though we're not doing it perfectly, are striving to walk in these things because we see them in their Lord. And in so doing, that's how the Lord might reveal the glory of the cross to them. When they say, why are you like this? We point to the cross and we unfold it to them. And perhaps God will lead them to say, I need the Christ of that cross. Finally, before I close in prayer, there's a rare but notable occurrence that happens on Chopped. Most times, the judges, I mean, they're always straightforward and clear. They commend a dish. They, they tell the contestants what they could have done better. And of course, most of the time they have to say, you didn't do this, this, and this, so sorry, you're chopped. But they're, 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 they're cordial. In fact, many times they're nice about it. They really are. Sometimes they, they really commend the dish and say, no, this, this is really good. They'll say something like, this is the best dish I've had in the chopped kitchen all day. You can imagine a chef who has prepared for years that this is their life's work. And then someone they look up to, someone they admire immensely says, your dish is the best thing I have had in this kitchen all day. But then once in a while, one of the judges will say, you know, I, I can't stop eating this. This, this is incredible. You, you know, I, I would put this on the menu at one of my restaurants right now. Let's let that sink in. Someone, and yes, they are a trained chef, they have the passion for it, they, they love it, but they're given a group of ingredients that are completely dissimilar. They're given a short amount of time to creatively come up with something that they are at this point, we're just hope, hoping to get them to the next round. They have to deal with all of the stress and the sweat of putting it together. They give it to the judge, and the judge says, you know, this is so good, I, I, I could put this in, in my menu today. If that is something that a human can do, and we thank the Lord for how he created us to do things like that, think of what the living God can do through his people, filled with his spirit, 
following his son, embodying his virtues, to serve us up to the souls of Oakland so that they may see, experience, have an appetizer of his glory, his unique supremacy, his significant importance, his brilliant beauty as they culminate in the sinless life, sacrificial death, and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Father, we are awed by just the fact that you are using us. It tickles us. And yet it humbles us. And so we just pray this passage right now. We pray that we would take very, very seriously the redemption that you had, that Paul wrote of, that happened even before the foundation of the world, that culminated in the person and work of Christ on the cross and the empty tomb. And we pray that as we're about to take communion, that as we look around at those with whom we are engaging with in this wonderful holy supper, that we would realize that these are the very people that you have called us to be in fellowship with. And so that we want to give ourselves over now to regarding and relating to them with humility, with gentleness, with patience, with bearing with one another in love, and that this communion and every communion, we, as we participate, we're going to be reminded of the unity that we have in you and that we will eagerly make every effort, do everything that's needed to be done to maintain that unity. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Pastor Lance. What do you do if you're feeling convicted this morning? I hope that you are. Uh, I know that I am. There are all sorts of areas in my life, just in reflecting as Lance was preaching. Uh, this week, this morning, <laughs> where I have failed to show all of these things, and as Lance said to us, the, the way to become a person who exercises humility with other people and a person of patience and a person of gentleness and who bears with others in love is not self-determination. It is not greater willpower, uh, but it is actually experiencing God being all of these things to you. That's what this text is about, and that's actually what this table is about. And so if you're feeling convicted this morning... God is actually inviting you to this table. That really is the first step to growing in patience and in love and in gentleness and in humility. It's actually coming to the one who says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest, for I am gentle and I am humble in heart. We come to a God this morning who has shown infinite patience towards broken, messy people, and infinite gentleness towards broken, messy people, and who is endured in love with broken, messy people all the way to a cross, 
And that is what this table reminds us of and points us to and invites us to experience once again or perhaps for the very first time in your life this morning. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And after he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it, saying, this cup is the cup of the, of, is the, cup of the new covenant, which is shed in my blood and it is poured out for the, for the forgiveness of sins for many. Drink this in remembrance of me. The Apostle Paul tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for the invitation of this table and that the way has been opened for us to come, not because of who we are and what we've done, but because of who your son is and what he has done and all that he has done for us. And so we give you thanks and praise this morning for your patience with us, that you're gentle with us, for the humility, Jesus, that you have shown to us in your life and on the cross, and for the love that you give to us in this table. Would you give us grace to believe these things this morning? We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.